What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we continue our series on penitence. We are looking at what it means to repent, forgive, and live with grace in our lives. Last week we looked specifically at repentance, what it means, and how it can help lead us to walk as Jesus walked. We are called children of God, and there are a couple of simple tests to see if we are living like God's children. Do we put our faith in Jesus Christ as one of them? And the second is, do we live by the commandments? Are we turning away from our sins so that our lives are oriented around love and grace? Some of you may have noticed there was a word I only touched on at the very end of the sermon. Usually when we talk about repentance, we talk about forgiveness too, but there's an order to this. First we repent, and then God forgives. But it doesn't stop there, otherwise we've missed the whole point of forgiveness, the whole point of our faith. Repentance not only leads to God forgiving us, it also leads to a changed life among us. We are going to look at this uh, more as we hear our scripture for today from Sal. Uh, He is going to read for us from the Gospel of Luke. This is deep into Jesus' ministry. He is just a short time away from entering into Jerusalem where he will be crucified. He is telling story after story, performing miracle after miracle, becoming incredibly popular for the deeds he does and the way his words about God cut to the heart. Here he offers up a few sayings that can be tough for us to put together. But we're going to see if we can get there uh, together here. Let's hear our scripture for today from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a milestone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Then for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostle said to Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in, from plowing and tending sheep in the field. Come here at once and take your place at the table. Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, 
put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks to Thanks God. God. Amen. And from Proverbs 28, 13, no one who conceals transgressions will prosper, but one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's pray together. God, may we be an inclusive community, passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts and lives that we might have penitent hearts and lives lived for you. Transform us as we seek your word for us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It can be hard to forgive people, especially when those people play for your favorite sports team and mess up. Uh, sometimes, though, we might say it's not exactly their fault. Uh, maybe you know about the curse of the New York Rangers. They hadn't won a Stanley Cup championship for over 50 years after they finished paying off the contract for Madison Square Garden and burned the contract inside the championship cup. Uh, you can't blame players when they're just cursed, can you? Uh, I lived in Philadelphia for several years, and it was well known that no Philadelphia sports team had won a championship because of the curse of Billy Penn. Uh, William Penn was the founder of Pennsylvania, and his statue was at the top of City Hall, the tallest building in Philadelphia until 1986, which was right when the championship drought began in the city. The curse would not be broken until the Comcast Center was built. The, uh, this building was owned by the Cable and Sports Network, so they placed a four-inch figure of William Penn at the top, and wouldn't you know it, the next year, the Phillies won the World Series. Now, there is probably no supposed curse better known than the curse of the Bambino. Uh, the Bambino, of course, is the nickname of Babe Ruth, who many considered the greatest baseball player of all time. After helping his team win three championships, he was traded from Boston to the New York Yankees, who, with the help of the Bambino, would go on to be one of the most dominant professional sports franchises in North America going from zero to 26 championships. Boston, in the meantime, would win zero World Series. Uh, that's 86 years of a curse. And it's not like Boston didn't have their chances. They lost several World Series, uh, one of which was to the 86 Mets. Any fans here? Okay, one or two fans here. Uh, a series that the Boston Red Sox were winning until game six. With the score tied in extra innings, a blooper was hit to first base where Bill Buckner of the Red Sox just messed up. All he had to do was grab the ball as he had done thousands of times in his career and touch first base, but instead the ball rolled between his legs and the Mets won. They would go on to win game seven and the curse of the Bambino lived on. 
Bill Buckner was a great player too, but after that World Series loss, fans were angry. Uh, this was a case where people were not willing to forgive. They heckled and booed him at home games. He even received death threats, and the media treated him like a pariah. He was released from the team and always had to live with the stigma of being the guy who lost the World Series from fans. He moved to Idaho, of all places, to get away from it all. Years later, Boston would eventually break the curse in 2004. And you know what they did after that? They invited Bill Buckner back to a Red Sox game, and when they greeted him, they gave him a two-minute standing ovation. When he was asked about it later, he had to hold back tears and said how he was forgiving not just fans, but the media too for all that they had put him and his family through. The next day's headline in the city paper read, All is Forgiven. Despite being a symbol of failure for 20 years, forgiveness prevailed. Now that's a lovely story, and even though I don't believe in those curses, I'm glad it ends with forgiveness. Yet as tough as it is to forgive in sports, it's usually much harder to forgive people that you see every day, people we have to deal with on a regular basis. How difficult is it to forgive when a friend betrays us or a spouse is unfaithful? What about people who injure us so deeply it still causes us pain years later? Are we really supposed to just forget about it? Should we really just let people get away with it? That seems wrong too, doesn't it? To let someone just harm and injure others without consequences? There's actually part of our brain that lights up when we experience pain. And there's a funny thing that happens inside us. If we react to the pain by retaliating, by getting revenge and inflicting pain back on the other person, it lights up another part of our brain. Can you guess what it is? It's the pleasure center of our brain. Our brain rewards us when we get back at someone else. Revenge is built into our biology. But here's the problem. If we all just go with it and inflict pain on others for hurting us so we get that reward in our brains, what happens? Then we'll all just be hurting each other over and over and over. It's like the saying, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. There is no wisdom in indulging in retaliation. Instead, Jesus points in a totally different direction. Luke chapter 17 has one of these examples where Jesus points to a different way. Uh, there are others earlier in Luke. Jesus says he has come to proclaim forgiveness to those held in captivity. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus shares the Lord's Prayer where he teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In Mark, Jesus even says, forgive them so God for, can forgive you your sins. It's almost as if God forgiving us is contingent and that it hangs on whether we can forgive others. Forgiveness is a pretty standard belief in Jesus' day. Everyone agreed that when someone had done wrong, uh, there was this pretty simple formula that needed to play out. If someone repented of their sin, acknowledged they were wrong, and the wrong that they had done, then restitution was needed. The person had to restore what was taken or lost. So if they did, then forgiveness was given to that person. 
you break it, then you need to replace it, and then you are forgiven. So let's walk through what Jesus is describing in Luke 17. Are his expectations the same as the culture around him? Jesus starts by recognizing that we are all bound to stumble sometimes, uh, but the real problem is the people who are causing others to stumble. If you are provoking others, if you are purposefully leading others away from God and towards sin, he says it would be better if you were drowned in the sea. This is a, a stark thing for Jesus to say. Jewish people would never put a millstone around someone's neck. Only the pagans would do something so awful. So it's almost doubly offensive what he's saying here. He's not saying, though, that we should do that, of course. Only that if the person were dead, at least they, they couldn't harm others. People like that are doomed, like the man in the previous story Jesus told, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, you may recall the rich man was begging to just dip his finger in water to cool his tongue. But Jesus says it can't happen. Jesus reminds us how serious the consequences are when we cause people to stumble. One more point about stumbling. Jesus describes those who stumble as these little ones. I know when I read that this week, I wondered, who are the little ones here? Are, are there children around just standing there? This group of disciples following Jesus that has both men and women, uh, did they have children in it too? Maybe there are some tiny disciples in Sunday school while Jesus is preaching. I don't know. Uh, but uh, this is actually a really interesting point here. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, of course, and, and the word for child is usually padion. Th that's not the word Jesus uses here. He uses micron, which is where we get words like microscope and microphone it means small who are these small ones then it could be physically small like a child but it probably means something more like these ones with a small amount of faith or or uh, who might be called the least of these among us it makes sense because Jesus talks about the value of having faith the size of a mustard seed, right? A really small amount of faith. And serving like a slave, a person with low rank and who would need to serve with humility. The weakest. Oh, God. So Jesus puts before the disciples a made-up scenario. Imagine this weak person sins against you seven times in a day and seven times repents. You must forgive them. And the disciples seem to recognize how difficult this is to do because they immediately ask Jesus to increase their faith. It is hard to forgive over and over, even if they don't know what they're doing, even if they are babies in the faith. It is hard not to cause someone to stumble, even when your aim is to always do good. How could they possibly achieve this? So Jesus reminds them that it's not about how large or small your faith is. Even the tiniest amount of faith, a faith so small it's like the size of a mustard seed, is enough to do the phenomenal. Here Jesus says you could uproot a mulberry tree. A mulberry trees back then were known for having deep, wide roots. Uh, we might say an oak tree today. But in another place Jesus says just a seed of faith is enough to move 
mountains. Not literally, of course, but when you trust God, even things that seem completely impossible, like moving a mountain, will be possible. God makes a way where there is no way. It might seem impossible to forgive, especially when the hurt is deep, but God makes it possible. The last part of Jesus is saying here is about a slave. It's not a particularly nice image here, and we might recoil some at Jesus talking about slaves, but he's not promoting it. He simply recognizes what is happening around him and uses it as an illustration here. He says the slave has to do their work. They work outside, and then when they come inside, they don't just do whatever they want. They have to keep working. And Jesus says we, as Christians, are similar. Our faith grows by using it, by saying, look, yes, this situation is difficult. It's hard work being a Christian, but we don't quit because of that. We keep forgiving. We keep working towards the best possible outcomes, even for those who seem like they really aren't giving much to this Christian community. They are worthy of forgiveness, too. So the point here is really important. Keep the faith. Keep it growing. And when it doesn't seem like forgiving is even worth the effort anymore, or where it seems like you could never forgive someone for the harm they've done, that's exactly when we forgive. We forgive because God calls us to, and because everyone is worthy of God's forgiveness. And how do we get there? How do we forgive instead of taking revenge or blowing people off? Well, there may be a few important things to keep in mind. One is that forgiveness and reconciliation are different things. Often we think, if I forgive someone, then I have to let them back into my life, and they very well may wreck it all over again. We're going to visit this idea next week, but for now, know that we can forgive without having reconciliation. Another important thing to keep in mind is about repentance and forgiveness. In Luke 17, Jesus says, if there is repentance, you must forgive. Now, there's a lot of debate out there on this point. Do we always have to forgive if someone repents? What if you aren't ready? What if it hurts too much? In other parts of Scripture, it talks about forgiving even without any repentance. So do we have to wait for repentance before we forgive? I think the point is unclear in Scripture. But my understanding here is that Jesus is reminding us how vitally important forgiveness is. Not just in the Christian who chooses to forgive, but in the wider world too. Our decision to forgive, even when it's difficult, releases us from the weight and pain of sin. It renews our bodies and can change our lives in ways we didn't even know were possible. In fact, I would argue that when we forgive someone, we aren't just offering our own forgiveness. We are a representative of Jesus Christ, exhibiting the same kind of forgiveness that God gives, even when people are broken and weak even when they want to do better but feel powerless to do so. When we forgive, God's love and grace is put on display so that they too can participate in the salvation and faith that only God can bring. 
So when we forgive, it's not just about whether a person followed all the requirements of receiving our forgiveness. It's really about us representing Jesus to that person. Can you forgive like God would forgive? Can you let go of the pain and bitterness so God shines through your life? Kids can do this so well sometimes, can't they? They can be hurt by someone and they just brush it aside and put their trust in you all over again. I told this story once before, uh, but several years ago when my oldest son was just a year or two old, he woke me up in the middle of the night. I didn't know it, but I was having serious complications with sleep apnea because, uh, with my sleep because of sleep apnea. And when he woke me up, I lost it. I was really angry and told him, go back to bed and don't ever wake me up again. And as he walked out of the room, I was filled with shame and remorse. He was just a little kid and he wanted his dad. I was so wrong and started worrying that I had broken my relationship with my son. And just as I was certain that I had committed an unforgivable sin, here comes my son back into the room with his blanket and his teddy bear. Never have I been so glad to have my son want to snuggle with me. And I think that's a pretty good picture of how God wants us to forgive one another, don't you? Imagine being there, that ready to forgive others. Imagine a world where our relationships are healed that quickly and God's forgiveness radiates from us that readily. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? And that beauty reminds me of the Anabaptists. That's the, the Amish and the Mennonite. About a year ago today, 17 members of the Christian Aid Ministries, the missionary arm of the Mennonite Church, were kidnapped while helping the people of Haiti. For years, they had given school supplies, medicine for the clinics, and food to the hungry in the poorest country in the Eastern Hemisphere. Because the situation is so desperate there, it made a kind of perverse sense that these missionaries were kidnapped. After they visited an orphanage supported by the Christian Aid Ministries, they were taken at gunpoint. The gang that did this demanded $17 million, a million dollars for each person. What do you do? They didn't have the money to pay, and it would have crippled their ability to help thousands upon thousands of people in Haiti. How do you forgive someone who does something like that? But just listen to the things the Mennonite community was saying about the kidnappers. The kidnappers, like all people, are created in the image of God and can be changed if they turn to him. While we desire the safe release of our workers, we also desire that the kidnappers be transformed by the love of Jesus, the only true source of peace, joy, and forgiveness. A father of a hostage said this about the kidnappers. This is, this is about their child. We are interested in the salvation of these men, and we love them. Another father of, of another child that was kidnapped said this of a hostage. As a family, we are giving forgiveness to these men. We are not holding anything against them. They didn't demand revenge. They didn't belittle these kidnappers. Even before any repentance or knowing the result of the kidnapping, they forgave. They sought a course that would best reveal the love and grace of Jesus Christ. 
They forgave as Jesus forgave so that others would turn to God no matter the situation, no matter the cost. Eventually, their patience and prayers were rewarded when five hostages were released and then the other 12 made a daring escape in the middle of the night last December. All were safe and that community gave a witness of what God's forgiveness truly looks like. We'll actually have the book in our church library on Tuesday called Kidnapped in Haiti, if you're interested in reading more about this incredible story for yourself. So now, I invite you to that same kind of life, a life that stands ready to forgive, no matter the situation, no matter how worthy others may seem, so that God's love shines through you. It isn't always easy, and it may even go against your gut reaction. But forgiveness is the root to real peace. Whether someone turns back to you in repentance or not, we stand always and forever ready to forgive. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.